now COVID is kind of going away as a live issue, where are the people who were sort of following that conspiratorial path going to go? Great Reset, WEF, Klaus Schwab. There's kind of conspiracy inflation. I don't think that path's particularly helpful. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, excellent. So David Fuller, you built a pretty massive independent media brand, Rebel Wisdom. I'm sure a lot of people listening or watching already know a thing or two about Rebel Wisdom. And you recently decided, well, sounds like you went to India and you came back with the decision that Rebel Wisdom is going to come to an end. What happened in India? What did you discover? So this is, um, yeah. So basically the, the India store is I went there to do some breath work with, with a amazing breathwork practitioner friend of mine. And it's kind of been my kind of go-to spiritual practice for quite a while. I was kind of intimately connected in a way to the creation of rebel wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I'm sure people watching will know rebel wisdom is kind of, it interviews a lot of people, um, public intellectuals talking about ideas, but very much also based in practice. So relational practices, spiritual practices, meditation practices, different embodiment practices. Um, and it's been sort of tracking that whole ongoing conversation about the different intersecting groups that are really interested in these ideas, kind of existential risk, uh, inner and outer transformation, and then the practices as well. And I particularly went to India to, I was feeling a little bit creatively blocked and felt like there was, there was something that was, um, yeah, getting in the way. And then while I was doing the, the breath work while I was kind of exploring that and releasing um, quite a lot of kind of emotion to do with kind of frustration of, of, of feeling like I wasn't sure where the project was going I wasn't sure where the conversation because we've also been sort of tracking this conversation as well that's felt like a kind of very live exploration feeling that I wasn't sure where it was going next it felt like it was really fragmenting and while I was doing that I kind of was like well maybe that narrative arc is actually coming to an end maybe there is something else that maybe rebel wisdom has served its purpose and then there was a whole sort of set of of um conversations as well around well maybe that whole heterodox wave that rebel wisdom was tracking has like that whole cultural force the wave that someone like jordan peterson was riding the wave that created the intellectual dark web feels to me like it peaked has broken is now in some ways has done its job like mm. i think the the kind of heter the mainstream consensus is kind of lying bleeding on the gutter right now and it, i kind of feel like we need synthesis not rebellion and the question is whether re rebel wisdom is kind of intimately tied to that kind of rebellion heterodox wave and that its time is passing I see, um, right, because since you launched it and kind of built the brand around this heterodox moment, this kind of anti-cancel culture moment, now yeah. that the things have moved on, you feel, then you kind of need a fresh start, it seems. I feel like the cultural conversation is shifting. I think that, um, yeah, that if people like Andrew Sullivan um, recently said the vibes are shifting. Like, I think we hit peak woke, and I think we're now coming back. So I think there's a healthier conversation in the mainstream mm. and I'm drawn to explore what that might look like. Um, kind of maybe going a little bit back to my roots as BBC channel four yeah. journalist. Um, the rebelism story isn't quite complete. Um, there's a whole series of pieces that are going to be coming out between now and the end of November or November when our last event's going to be. So I feel like very creatively inspired as well. Like that was part of the process in India was actually kind of letting go of the emotional attachment to the project as much as I could and the right. sort of sense of identity around the thing that I think has really been my identity for the last four or five years 
actually I felt a, a huge creative liberation and so many of the things that I was kind of wrestling with now yeah now I feel much more creatively inspired and I, I hope there's going to be a lot of really good content well there's gonna be a lot of content I hope it's really good um, <laughs> documentaries um, written pieces coming out between now and October and November and then I don't quite know what my next thing is but I feel like it's yeah there's this sort of I don't know how comfortable you are with the kind of spiritual practice slightly more woo talk but there, there's something that I think is emerging constellating that is going to be a new thing um, rebel wisdom was the right form for its time and I think that something else um, I don't know what that something else is I've got right. a few sort of broad outlines but I also don't want to um, jump to something before the time is ready for it to have fully kind of yeah. uh, constellated yet. Totally. makes sense. Well, maybe we can exploratively uh, feel through what that thing might be by talking a little bit about what that heter heterodox moment was, this moment that you think is passing me, because it seems that you have a good sense for these kinds of cultural uh, trends. I think you kind of pride yourself on that uh, to some degree, being able to sense when a cultural tidal wave is is brewing and in a large part you built rebel wisdom on a certain wager of of that particular tidal wave that was what we're calling the heterodox moment um so you are probably prescient in sensing that something is changing and you probably have the correct sense that something new is coming and you might not know immediately what it is but we why don't we start with what Maybe what what was looking back on the heter on the heterodox moment, you know, maybe with the clarity and detachment, a little bit of, of hindsight, what was it? What was it really? Has your have your views on it changed, or have you learned anything in retrospect um, that that surprises you? I feel like so you 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 mentioned kind of putting you used a gambling metaphor. Was that uh, a metaphor? wager? Did I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. I think my my kind of skill is because I've been in the, in the media and in the cultural conversation for a very long time inside newsrooms. Because um, I think there's a lot of people who are in the media, but they're maybe kind of like, if they're an opinion columnist or they're sort of just sending in, they're, they're a kind of jobbing journalist, they probably will send in articles. They may not have been part of a newsroom, but actually having been part of a newsroom at BBC and Channel 4 and just seen the kind of, been part of those conversations for like 15 years or so, you get a real sense of where the cultural conversation is mm -hmm. um, in a quite a visceral way. And then when I saw Jordan Peterson in 2017, I was like, oh my God, this is, this guy's going to go viral <laughs> for so many different reasons. One, because I think there's, um, from the broader cultural perspective, like the new atheist, the new atheist worldview, I think is full of holes and Peterson was challenging that. And I think that was overdue. He was bringing back kind of myth, um, religion to a, to a, a place that was kind of desperate for a deeper sense of meaning, a deeper sense of purpose. Right. So there's that kind of the meaning crisis mm -hmm. that John Viveki talks about. There was that angle that Peterson was, was directly talking to. Then there was the cultural piece of we're in a culture that's lost touch with so many traditional values and is overshot in terms of blank slatism and postmodernism and deconstruction to the point where so many people don't know what the fuck to do because we've kind of undermined all of these kind of traditional ways of, of knowing. And, and the, so Peterson was definitely bringing that sort of lost traditionalism and the kind of father archetype for a generation of particularly young men, but I think of, of many people who were craving that kind of father archetype, like the, the world which says, you can be anything that you want to be and just make it up for yourselves. Right. It doesn't give any purpose or direction. So Peterson was coming in with that sense of like, no, there are certain evolved characteristics or certain evolved ways of being that you discount at your peril while hopefully, I mean, the, the ideal is not being constrained by those. So you're not just purely arguing conservatism, but you are arguing that you, you need to take account of of these things before before you kind of and it was all very anti wasn't it it was very anti-council culture yeah. anti-woke yes. you know it, a, a, a vague sense of in indignation yeah kind of a sense of marginalization and i feel like all cultural trends that i mean the feeling of indignation 
Mm. Uh, especially when it's righteous, especially when it's validly righteous, you know, when there, when there's like something really genuinely to be uh, opposed to that's dominant and wrong and, and stupid. Um, that can be really galvanizing and energizing, but it also kind of runs out of steam at a certain point, right? And, and Or you become captured by it yourself. Right. Which okay. I think so what happened with Peterson. That's fascinating. So, so there's kind of two things there. There's the, it naturally runs out of steam mm. once you're anti-something. If you, if you win, then it's no longer really interesting to be anti-something. And it does kind of seem like now the people who went full, who just forgot about cancel culture or people who like got canceled but kept going. It seems like those people are 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 winning. I, I think, and I think we're. I mean, I've kind of been saying this for a while now, but I think now it's increasingly clear that we're we're so past cancel culture that in fact the all the rising stars who I would bet the most on are people who have been fully canceled um, completely. So so I are, I'm, I'm partial to the to the view that the cancellation the cancellation problem has already been defeated. Like all you really need is courage and determination and you got to keep going. But if you do, it's like you come out the other side bigger. So I think that's part of it, in my opinion, um, is that the, the 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 value of being opposed and indignant to this stuff ha- is over because you can just ignore it and do great things. And it's even more interesting if you just skip right over it. I think that's part of it. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but you added an, an interesting additional component, this idea of capture. Yeah, you can, there is this problem, isn't there, where if you if you rise too big on this kind of indignation and this kind of uh, righteous opposition, you can kind of get stuck there, can't you? Um, yeah. What have you seen with that gar- regard? What is your diagnosis of Peterson? Um, so Peterson is one example, but I would say what's been fascinating to watch is that over the last sort of four or five years, like the morality tale for me of the whole IDW, intellectual dark web, which was, I'm assuming most of your viewers will know what it is, but kind of like some podcasters, public intellectuals, who were identified in 2018 as this is the solution for the sense-making crisis. The, The mainstream media, the legacy media is so kind of like ideologically captured. There are so many kind of incentive structures that mean that it's no longer a fit for purpose as a truth-seeking enterprise, which I have a lot of empathy for, mm-hmm. sympathy for as an argument. The argument was these people are independent, they have independent means, they are able to follow truth fearlessly. But what you realize was that no, if you're outside the institutions, by definition, you're dependent on your audience. Mm. And that audience kind of feedback becomes a warping factor in what you're able to say, what you're able to do. And I think for a lot of people in a way that is completely imperceptible. Like Peterson is a perfect example of someone who, he had that kind of reactive side to him. But when he did that incredible interview with Kathy Newman, why it was so amazing was that he kept his cool. He was calm, he was he was kind of yeah. laughing, he was like- That was, was kind his, of, I think his finest work. Maybe, yeah, maybe his, his single as, best piece ever, yeah. Yeah, it was his manner as much as anything that, that won that argument. Mm. And then the more he's become the caricature of himself that the, the kind of far left always said that he was, the, the less impact I think he's going to have, the, the more he's become a kind of... I think the characterization, um, this, it, it's, it's fascinating to me that, to see that and so many people have actually gone backwards in their ability to kind of make sense of the world, in their... Um, the, the, bub, the kind of rabbit holes that they've gone down or the... the the kind of reactivity or conspiratorial ideation, conspiratorial ideation or whatever, like there's no curiosity, there's no openness, there's mm-hmm. no kind of, people have become more and more extreme versions of whatever their views were maybe back in 2018. Mm. And that's a really fascinating, and there's so many reasons for that. I think, right. I think relative fame in later life after you've kind of felt that you've got something special to share for most of your life is a really warping factor. Um, especially if you're not used to that kind of popularity, that's a big issue that has really kicked in for a lot of these people. Um, well, it's hard enough to change your mind when you're older, but to do it with the baggage of uh, millions of people who love you for one specific thing that you represent. Yeah. You know, it, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. How It's got to be almost impossible to yeah. significantly update. Yeah, and I know. felt I felt that kind of viscerally from the inside, like the YouTube comments thread and the the kind of the audience that you've attracted and where you're algorithmically placed. Mm. Like I know where Rebel Wisdom's algorithmically placed and who the kind of, where people are coming right. from. And it's people that most of our viewers are coming from, like Jordan Peterson or Russell Brand or uh, The Dark Horse. And all of them to one degree or another, like Russell Brand is now like full on clickbait. 
um, <laughs> conspiratorial. Is he? I didn't notice. Yeah, I didn't like, see, I just, don't just go out of his channel and look really? at look at the kind of cl- look at the titles of the video. It's like <laughs> he's completely changed. Wow. Um, and so many of these people have really gone off the deep end, and and in a way, like Rebel Wisdom was part of that. We definitely had were sort of part of that kind of heterodox wave of 2018 onwards, but we've always tried to have a deeper sense of practice, self-reflection, um, mindfulness. Our sense-making course, for example, is is not just how do you make sense of the world, but how do you make sense of, your, of ourselves? How do we make sense of our kind of motivations? How do we look at our shadow motivations? How do we look at kind of how we're being manipulated by the tools that we're using, all of these sort of things, mm-hmm. and try to bring in a bit more of a kind of holistic perspective than just being about the ideas or just being about kind of like if I wanted to build rebel wisdom much bigger I would have just carried on kind of following the anti-woke playbook because there's a huge audience for that content on YouTube like people just want to keep hearing you know what's funny is like there might be some people in my audience who find some of um rebel wisdom's angles a little woo as you you know self-deprecatingly alluded to uh modestly alluded to but interestingly the benefit and the value of that is showing itself in this case where you have this detachment and this humility and this ability to step back and say, you know what, this was temporary. This was for a particular moment. I see where I think other people are going off the deep end and we're going to make the decision to just wrap this up and pivot onto something else. And, you know, in a, in a way, if people are skeptical of, of what might sound a little woo, it actually is really showing off its, its strength and, and its advantage in a moment like this, because it's really hard to wrap up something that is financially successful, that's that you can keep growing if you want to. It takes a lot of mindfulness and a lot of awareness and and genuine kind of commitment to real values to be able to say, oh, okay, this is succeeding and keeps growing, but it's not what needs to happen now. I want to do something different, and to have the mindfulness for that, it, that probably you can only get that with the kind of mindfulness that you're so interested in. So, you know, I think that's actually a, a pretty powerful lesson to the people who maybe are skeptical of all the mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, and I'd say that of of the um, the people in that original constellation, who I think have gone least off the rails. I'd I'd say Sam Harris and Joe Rogan both of whom are kind of have got different practices that they're mm. that they're doing mm. Sam obviously with his meditation background Joe I think is much more of an embodied person like he's got the MM he's got the um, MMA like he's 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 used to being he's got resilience he's got kind of embodied resilience right um, and I have to say like I, I it's not that I have no doubts about the wrap-up of rebel wisdom I still kind of I'm like am I really is this the right decision? And I've got plenty of people telling me that it's not the right decision. Um, it still feels right that something else, it's not the right vehicle for whatever whatever I feel needs to come come next. Right, but, sure. But there's also a sense of like, um, yeah, there's a real sense of kind of um, almost a grieving process that I feel to go through first before... Sure deciding what it is that comes next. Sure, fair enough. So you have this theory that COVID was an inflection point for Mm. sending some people off the rails in this kind of dynamic you're describing where people over time at a certain level of fame kind of tend to get captured by their audience and become a caricature of themselves. What did COVID change? What exactly did COVID accelerate? And what was it about COVID that seemed to push people off the deep end uh, more rapidly? Mm. So I think COVID was like a catalyst. It was an accelerator of a lot of stuff that was already there. And from a sense-making perspective, a truth-seeking perspective, I feel like it. there are a lot of people who are pushed into, um, what do you call, not quite trauma, but this is something John Bavakey said. He predicted right at the beginning of, of the pandemic that there was going to be a, a huge rise in conspiratorial thinking because the nature of the, the threat is mm. it's kind of ever-present, but it's invisible. There's these purity codes about kind of washing your hands. And like he's like, this puts us into a very kind of Old Testament way of thinking. Yeah. He's like, this is triggering so many. So you get kind of apophenia, overactive kind of pattern recognition. We're much more open to kind of 
yeah, conspiratorial thinking, but also on the other side, flipping into um, just completely kind of um, what Peter Lindbergh would call um, thesis, COVID thesis, just do do what you're told, don't question. And I think on both sides, like the the the, the conversation fragmented and really fragmented around the, the COVID kind of thesis and antithesis where they weren't talking to each other. And this was a fundamental rift, particularly in America, I think. Um, we kind of kept it together a little bit more in the UK for various reasons. Mm. Like it never felt like it completely fractionated society in the okay. same way. Okay. Maybe it would be interesting to go through them a little bit because you pay close attention to this space. So I, I don't always necessarily. So um, w let's just maybe go through some of them. Like Peterson, for instance, where specifically do you think he went wrong? What was his big recent... Um, inflection point in your diagnosis um, I mean now if you follow him on Twitter you're basically seeing him um, insulting uh, plus size uh, black swimwear models oh I recall that tweet it's just <laughs> like what 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 are you doing like mm. and then coming back and saying Oh, Twitter just with with no kind of like oh, no admissions of like actually you know what it was a silly thing to have tried to have done this on Twitter. Um, I'll do it as a podcast, but no coming back with just full everyone's being beastly to me. I'm going to give up Twitter, and it's everyone else's fault. It's like right, really like that's the personal responsibility guy, is it? Right. It's like we should we should already ha understand enough how these platforms work, right? It's like uh, yeah. It's we can't really feign surprise anymore, right? When it's like yeah. when you say something that's, you know, provocative, we know how these platforms work. We know what happens, right? It's like, there's a lot of that, isn't there? There's a lot of this kind of like feigned mm. surprise or feigned shock. Like um, this stuff plays out over and over again every day on Twitter. And it's like yeah. everyone insists on, you know, being uh, being shocked and awed when uh, they say something provocative and, ever, and their mentions are filled with insane amounts of hatred and antagonism. <laughs> there's a, you tell me if you've heard this, you're obviously... Um, sort of deep in different kind of intellectual traditions. And there's something about the feedback loop of social media that I think is having an unexpected consequence of forcing people to constellate and kind of crystallize around their ideas and their ideology. And often like some of their worst ideas. Mm. Because you put it out there on social media, people criticize it, you end up defending it. So you build up your psychological attachment to something that maybe you should only have like 70% confidence in or 80% right. confidence in. So it seems that people crystallize their, their personality and their worldviews because they're forced to defend it because, because this sort of tribalizing aspect comes in on Twitter as well. Right. And it's like, it's like they kind of, so as it, as social media works at the moment, it kills curiosity. It seems to kill growth. It seems to kill any opportunity for dialogue across the divides because it's quite effectively tribalized and those divisions between the tribes are, are viciously policed as well. Mm, like right. if you see kind of, if you start to learn the, the landscape, you realize like how, how well established and there's sort of different roles of people like policing the boundaries of various right. tribes and all right. of that starts to come in. Yeah. Um, so there's, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts yeah. on that. There is something about, about that feedback loop with social media that seems to, to just crystallize people into a kind of like, they've assumed their final form in a way and their final form gets more and more kind of reactive and... Yeah, definitely. I think the mechanism that you're describing is, is something along the lines of this. It's like one's provocative ideas that draw a lot of polarization, draws haters, but also draws lovers. Those ideas are the ones that you get the most social media growth around, mm -hmm. basically. And so in a way, if you say something on the internet that gets you a big burst of new followers, mm. you to keep growing, you have to respect the, that burst of new followers, or you won't keep growing. Mm. And so, any social media platform is game, is intrinsically gamified. Like you want to see the number go up, right? You, most that's what most social media are. They're like a, a, a video games for adults, mm. where like the the medium of the game is words. You type words in, or you, or pictures, or whatever. You know, it's like an adult video game. But ultimately, at the end of the day, most people just want to make their follower count go up. That that's the video game, right? And so, I think that's essentially what's happening uh, in what you describe. It's that because I've noticed this. I've noticed this that like I've had a few 
you know, kind of nuclear tweets over the years. And in those, in those nuclear tweets, you get a ton of haters, but you also get a ton of new followers. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was very clear to me. It was always very clear to me. I could just choose for the next six months after one of those nuclear tweets to just keep saying stuff like that, throw as much red meat as possible to all those new people, mm-hmm. right? And also piss off all the same people who are getting pissed off who inadvertently share, share it even more, right? Uh, and it was always clear that that was a very available growth path. And if most people are just playing this, these things like video games, which they're basically trained by the platforms to do, then it makes sense from like an evolutionary game theory perspective that at the end, in, in the in the final equilibrium, mm. the, pop, the, the platform is only going to surface people who basically double down on those growth opportunities. Because if you if you don't, and like I haven't, um, every time I've gone super nuclear on some provocative tweet, I, I set that aside for a little bit. I like stepped away from it. I talked about other things, right? Because mm. I don't, I don't want to be like known for one or two provocative tweets or whatever. It's not like what I'm obsessed with. So I don't want to be that guy forever. Um, so I'd go on to other things. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, m- people could say this is just cope or whatever, but I, I'm not as big as I could be because I write about all kinds of things and I try my honest best to not really have a tribe. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's cope. I think it's actually just honest and objective to say that like my audience could be much bigger if I just leaned harder into, I was like a Jordan, if I decided to be like a Jordan Peterson fan and a Brett Weinstein fan and ally and, you know, cozied up to all those guys early, early days, got them on my podcast early and, you know, ingratiated myself in those communities and all, you know, like you can do that and you can grow faster that way. And I do pride myself a little bit on being a lone wolf and, and I've never done that, but my point is not to talk about myself. My point is I've seen, I think, and I, and I do believe this is empirically valid that, um, yeah, there are just strong selection pressures in favor of doing more of that thing that is provocative. But the perversity of that is that often the thing that gets you growth is like a dumb idea or a bad idea or, mm-hmm. or the most extreme idea or, or ridiculous ideas. And you end up doubling down the hardest on the, on some of your weakest ideas. Um, mm-hmm. so that's how I, I think that is true. I think that is how it works. And so in the case of, so you talked a little bit about Peterson. What about uh, Brett Weinstein? What, what was his trajectory and where did he, where did he go wrong? Um, it's a difficult one to talk about because Brett, um, I felt, I felt more of a kind of personal friendship with mm. Brett and we've done, we've done quite a lot of events together. And I respect um, him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I always did. And he's kind of part of the, the, the broader networks of a lot of the other people that mm. we featured and, um, and there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes at the time when we had what amounted to a kind of falling out. Um, and my main point was always trying to keep the dialogue open. And Brett, Brett, even to this day, has not hosted a single medical figure who contradicts the narrative that he's been putting forward about ivermectin and vaccines. And um, and my my feeling was that that, particular that particular topic the vaccines the ivermectin all of that stuff that was one of the most uh heated areas of the of the culture never really it it then blew up i mean ironically it blew up with with joe rogan only about six months afterwards when he hosted some of the same people brett had been hosting back in i think summer 20 20, yeah summer 21 um and yeah i i don't really um yeah it, it was difficult and it's the difficult dynamics as well that no one really knows how to deal with and you heard sam harris kind of addressing it a little bit as well we don't really know what to do when we've when we've our personal brand gets tied up with our like we knew when that when we were in the media and institutions we had some game rules we understood some game rules now that we're all our own platforms and you've got personal relationships tied up with truth seeking we don't know what to do mm. we don't know what to do um and i wasn't necessarily I, I looked into some of the claims that particularly some of brett's guests and brett were making on ivermectin and vaccines and they didn't seem to add up but at the same time that's not really the priority the priority for me was how do you create um opportunity because if Brett was right about some of these, these are really important topics. If Brett's wrong, they're really important topics as well, like lives are at stake. And what do you do when one of your friends is putting out stuff that looks to me like he's putting lives at risk? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really know. Like what, it's a, it's a real moral dilemma. I, I, I chose to put out a few pieces that were 
critical of Brett, that were critical of the way that he was going about things. I think increasingly he's now gone down a particular rabbit hole. He was just recently at a conference in Bath, which was hosted by Del Bigtree, old school anti-vaccine activist. Okay. Like the narrative of, oh, we're not, we're not criticizing vaccines. We're just criticizing these vaccines. But now, like that's, it's not true. Like the, the interesting narrative dynamic now is that the people who now COVID is kind of going away as a live issue. Where are the people who were sort of following that conspiratorial path going to go? Great Reset, WEF, Klaus Schwab, like it, it, yeah. there's there's kind of conspiracy inflation that people like Majid Nawaz have already kind of gone further down. And it's like uh, people and, and they've encouraged a lot of people down that path. And I don't think that path's particularly helpful. I don't think it's um, mm -hmm. my, my friend Jamie Wheel called it malevolent design. Mm. It's kind of this sort of sense of like the them. It's a psychological attractor. Sure. And it's a psychological attractor that I think stops people thinking. It, 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 people should have equal skepticism of the narratives on both sides. And I think the problem with a lot of the, of the heterodox contrarian space is that they were rightfully skeptical of the mainstream narratives and completely oblivious to the audience capture, to right. the, the uh, commercial incentives. The commercial incentives on the conspiratorial side are huge. Like huge amounts of people who are donating to people who are following that. The whole conspirituality tendency during the pandemic was a load of wellness influencers who realized that when they started sharing QAnon stuff, they got a lot more traction. Right. And so there's a huge attraction. I, yeah, I think the, the, peop the people don't seem to. Yeah, the frustration I have, at least from the comments thread that I see, is, is, is just the naivety, just the lack of kind of mm. willingness to challenge the narratives on both sides with equal skepticism i think the us versus them frame is uh a massively selected for it's a growth hack i mean it's like yeah if you can just say a little man willing to speak the truth against them the, the yeah kind of the big people are just is. so much more likely to share and to love it and to get enthusiastic if you can frame anything you're saying if you can frame it as righteously opposed to some other entity or them um it will always get more traction people will love it more people will identify with it more they'll get more excited uh they'll be more likely to share and um, I've seen that a lot for sure. So, you know, it's interesting to think, you know, from your perspective, what what do you think is the key to building viable media in this context, right? Because obviously you're taking a step back to think about these things because you see these pitfalls everywhere and, and you're you're very sensitive to these things. Um, but it sounds like, you're, you know, you're still invested in media. You still yeah. are you're thinking about building a production company. What what do you think might be some leads? I know you don't have this all figured out yet, but what are some touchstones or some key key ideas or bullet points for the future of of independent media that somehow dodges all of these kind of um, biases and selection effects? It's a really good question because you can also look at something like Substack mm -hmm. as as a similar mm -hmm. problem because people on Substack there's the same dynamic. They attract a certain audience. It's very sort of narrow casting. They then have to look for more and more content that feeds that particular audience, that particular narrative. I think that's been problematic as well. I think that I think there are some people who do push back against their audience. I want to give a shout out to someone like Daniel Pinchbeck, who, despite being in a very kind of conspiratorial ecosystem, has taken stances that are unpopular with his audience. He's called out He's called out Russell Brand, for example, for, and he was very, I found him very, to have a lot of moral clarity over Ukraine and Russia when a lot of the conspiratorial ecosystem was falling prey to a lot of like Russian propaganda and Putin's mm -hmm. talking points. And so someone like that, I think individual cu curators or creators can still push back against the tide, but the tide's pretty, pretty intense in one direction. Right. The other thing, oh, this is, this is one of the, questions that I have for whatever comes next after Rebel Wisdom is that I was feeling a sort of sense of um, discomfort with some of the attractors. Like part of the business model of Rebel Wisdom was obviously the courses that we were putting on. Um, this never happened. Like There was never a point where I was like, oh, well, actually, I need to be critical of John Bavacchio. I need to be critical of um, one of the people who's doing a course with us. But we could easily have, not without... Uh, could easily have had a course with Brett and Heather, for example. We did a, I did events with Brett and Heather like back in 2019. So we had those relationships, and I did I did feel like I was compelled to put out something that was critical of them, and, and did. 
but there could have been other business relationships. So how do you balance purely truth-seeking with the incentive structures? Right. And also the invisible incentive structures, particularly in the kind of heterodox space where people with big platforms don't get criticized by people within their own. Like I think so many people are self-sacrificing and not saying things they know or they believe to be true because of the kind of social dynamics, because of the kind of feeling of, well, maybe if I criticize this person, I won't be able to go on their podcast again, or like all of these different things, like what are the failure conditions in these ecosystems for truth seeking? That's something I think about a lot. And it's something I'd love to, whatever comes next for me, I'd love to build in some of this kind of um, mimetic um, protection from the beginning. Um, yeah. and I don't quite know what that looks like. I think it, I think it has to be somehow, somehow probably user generated in terms of being, being funded by, um, either bigger or smaller people who are able to kind of, um, empower you to cut, to follow stuff, but you've got to be careful that you don't select for an audience that's pushing you in a particular direction. Right. Are there enough people who kind of value nuance value kind of, um, you following wherever the kind of uncomfortable right. exploration will lead. And I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really more and more aware of all of the different factors that handicap pure truth-seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, it sounds like you're still favorable to crowdfunding. Like, you're not, you're not, it sounds like you're not ready to give up on that yet. You, you still see that as a net positive in terms of relative to traditional, you know, the, the way that traditional media would be funded. You sounds like your impression is that crowdfunding is still better than the old world. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. But I you think, think it sounds like you think the quality control or the the problems, the mimetic prote- protection, to use your excellent phrase, comes mm. in more at the level almost of of, of, of selecting who comes in or who it depends, it's for. Yeah, or, crowdfunding is fine depending on who the crowd is. <laughs> yeah, because crowdfunding can also, like for example, I think Dave Rubin. The, the Dave Rubin trajectory is really fascinating. Mm. Um, so, well, if anyone hasn't watched the, the Timber on Toast series about Dave Rubin, the battle, Dave Rubin's Battle of Ideas, have you seen that? No. It's you have to watch it. So, give us the TLDR on, um, on Rubin's it's four tra- hours of Rubin's trajectory from hey, I think there's a problem with when he did, did this. I think his first interview was with Sam Harris, where he was just sort of leaving the Young Turks and being like, hey, I think there's a problem with intolerance on the left. Yeah, I'm a liberal. To then. <laughs> then basically having Milo Yiannopoulos on, realizing that the anti-woke thing was getting all of the all of the views and getting more and more extreme up to in 2020, he was basically kind of QAnon light, saying Trump's got something. He Basically full-on Trump apologist at the time of kind of January the 6th, pretty much. I feel like I don't hear about him that much anymore. I'm sure he's yeah. still kicking, but what, yeah, I mean, what... Did, yeah, is like he, that's, is, I, think, I think he's increasingly culturally irrelevant, but he was culturally relevant for a while because he was cohering a conversation in this very interesting space at the beginning of the whole IDW movement, but I think he was always, always pretending to be something that he wasn't. Right. Um, in a way, now that he's a full-on Republican um, advocate, I think he's less um, like there's less of a problem now because I think he's he's identifying himself as what he is. But for a while, he was just like, oh, I'm just interested in ideas. I'm just I'm I'm just following the ideas wherever they lead, and it wasn't true. It was always in a particular direction. But anyway, the reason I mention that is because. I'm pretty sure that it's his audience, the Patreon audience and the people who are supplying, who are basically giving funding him to make the program, who were the radicalizing factor because they were attracted for that kind of strong anti-woke angle. And I feel I, I know that because when Rebel Wisdom first came along, we had a couple of people in our, in our sort of supporter Patreon community who were also funding Dave Rubin and they were the sort of like red meat anti-woke stuff. Oh, then over time, we attracted a different audience, many of whom have got a background in things like integral theory or developmental thinking, and they were much more comfortable with kind of nuance and, and more um, less strident. So I think it's possible to create an audience that is not pulling you too far in that direction, whereas if you start doing stuff about conspiracy or if you start doing stuff about kind of vaccines, you are going to attract a particular audience. And they... I've got a friend who their um, friends of theirs, basically wellness influencers who did go down the conspirituality route, found their followings like 50x or 100x during the pandemic. 
but he was he was saying like on one side he's kind of jealous of them but on another side he's like that audience will eat them alive if they now kind of in any way backtrack from the positions right. that they've been did you just use the word hosting. conspirituality yeah oh i haven't i haven't heard that okay but mm. it makes obvious sense to me when you, yeah. when you say it conspiracy conspiracy and spirituality sure which is a huge cuz a lot of the conspiracy theories are pseudo religious in a way yeah there's that but but it's more that spirituality and wellness influences became increasingly conspiratorial during the pandemic. Oh, okay. And there's an overlap. It's a little rabbit hole, but there's no, there's a big overlap and a vulnerability in the spiritual community because the spiritual community has got a lot of, you know, the secret, the whole kind of like right. imagine magical thinking of just if you positive visualizations, creating your own right. reality. Yep. And so it, in a way it's like a, already a positive conspiracy thinking. <laughs> yeah. Conspiracy right. Theory. Right. And it doesn't take much before it flips into the kind of opposite of that, right. kind of like the disempowering version of everything's, everything is arranged, everything is kind of organized, everything is, instead of it being a positive right. conspiracy, it's a negative one. Right. Um, so yeah, there's a great podcast called Conspirituality where they explore it. In wow. Depth. Yeah, that's fascinating. It makes perfect sense, right? Because that's the, that's basically the pros and cons of high openness, right? That the advantage, the disadvantages, apophania. And, yeah. you know, you, if you're open-minded, that's really great. You can be exposed to truths that other people are, aren't willing to see. You can also subscribe to just, uh, falsehoods that, that are actually just uh, randomness. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. So, okay. Let's talk about a little bit, but, of uh, some of the things that you are, you know, more interested in that you think might possibly be, you know, topics that are, you know, here to stay or, or of increasing relevance rather than decreasing relevance. I think masculinity is something that you're uh, particularly interested in as well. You know, tell us what, what is at a high level, you know, what do you, what do you think is at stake for men and for masculinity? What, what's, what's most important that you think over the next five to 10 years, um, really still needs to be worked out and will be worked out and, and will be of great interest to, to men. Mm. Um, before diving into the masculinity piece, yeah. um, just generally, I'm always interested in what are the cultural pressure points on the conversation. Um, mm. And I think the gender one or the masculinity conversation is one. And I think things are already starting to shift. Um, I'm interested in how the conversation is shifting between the masculinity, toxic masculinity is the problem, masculinity itself is the problem, therefore we need less masculinity versus my perspective and which comes from lots of the personal growth stuff I've done, which is immature masculinity is a problem and mature masculinity is a solution. Mm. In the same way that immature femininity is a problem and mature kind of femininity is a, is a solution. Okay. Um, and I think there is, a, there is a conversation moving. We're about four years on from Me Too. And in the aftermath of Me Too, there was a sense of women, is, it's now your time to speak and it's man, men, it's your time to listen which makes sense at the time. There was a lot, I think it was a necessary move, but by definition, that's not a healthy conversation. Like that's not a relationship. A relationship where one partner speaks and the other one shuts up is not a relationship. So it's like, what is a healthy relationship between men and women? I feel like so many of the cultural dynamics are downstream from a lot of these, sorry, sorry, so many of the like political and societal questions are, are downstream from the the kind of that mm -hmm. fundamental kind of relating question. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'm really drawn to. Yeah. Um, I've always hosted uh, men's retreats, and I'm I'm interested in that conversation. Like, what does a what does a more healthy conversation look like? Um, and also this catch twenty two that so many of the guys who come to our men's retreats talk about, which is I'm being encouraged by the culture to be more vulnerable, more open, like. Uh, shed these kind of like unhealthy patterns and also told shut the fuck up um, stop mansplaining and stop taking up so much space right. and I think so many of the, the guys of the younger generation feel really torn like they, they're being given contradictory messages right. by the culture right and so there's something about that like is there a healthy um, is there a more healthy conversation around masculinity and I think a lot of a lot of women like Nina Power are are kind of talking about this now like i think there is a there is a new openness and so it's that's something that feels quite alive so it's something that i do yeah. want to kind of continue yeah. exploring I, I think i buy that i mean i i, I don't 
really make too much content and that that's branded as masculinity stuff but i am a man obviously and um i guess some people follow me for some things kind of related to that in in some way but what could because what i see is that the the internet content that caters to the kind of trad manly types of guys who who feel that kind of the all the trad um instinctual masculine drives uh and and don't know how to you know manifest that uh happily and successfully in this increasingly kind of feminized society frankly that we, that we live in are turning to these like supplies of internet content that are incredibly just crappy frankly i mean like the bar is very low for being like a masculinity influencer of some it's really really low and a lot of a lot of these guys i i really i really think they're quite terrible and, and this is not even from a moral i'm not like moral grandstanding like uh they should be more feminist or something like that but just it's like especially when it comes to things like marriage and dating i find that some of the trad manliness advice people especially on twitter like the right-wing bodybuilder types who are like you know uh, building these huge accounts, giving this like really, really cheap, um, ridiculous advice on, you know, how to think about women and how to talk to women. I find this stuff to be incredibly uh, deleterious for, for men and for the culture. Um, and so to me, but there's a lot of it and it seems to grow and people seem to love it. So it seems like there's a massive gap there. And and what's currently on offer is I, I find really horrible, especially when it comes to dating and, and marriage, specifically around like men are being young men i feel like you know it's easy to critique the the kind of the the excessive feminism and and the stuff that tells men they're evil and we're past that That, that's an example of like we're past the peak of that i think a lot of most smart people and and men included have a sense that that's all crap and and unfair and and they're not gonna they're not gonna follow that stuff much longer if if at all but there's this new breed of like you know pro-man almost like pro-toxic masculinity where it's like let's embrace it let's you know you actually have to be somewhat toxic masculinity to to get chicks and to you know succeed and, and make money in life um and i find one of the specific things that people are, like i feel like young men specifically are being they're being taught um to kind of overestimate their mating prospects i think this is like one thing that you're saying like i have a lot of friends who are really smart dudes who are not married yet but you know they're hoping to get married they want to build a family and they like actually genuinely take real advice from like random and on Twitter, like male, male, you know, masculinity people. Mm. And it's like, I've, I've known friends who like, you know, they'll meet a girl and they won't. And she's like, I, I meet her. She seems pretty pretty. She seems pretty smart. She seems nice. And the guy will later next week, I'm like, oh yeah. So how's that going? Are you still seeing that girl? And, and he'll be like, no, you know, um, she has some problem X and it's like some problem that he just got from the internet. And it's like, is that do you even really care about that? Is that really a real problem for you, or is it because you're reading these anon guys on Twitter who just have psyoped you into thinking that a woman has to have X, Y, and Z? You know, there's a lot of that. So, so um, I don't know where I'm going with this exactly, other than to say it seems like a massive problem. There seems to be a real gap, and the quality of the content that 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 seems to fill this gap is is really quite poor. So mm. that in- that makes sense to me. It's interesting to. Um what you're describing is kind of the flip side. I was at the Heterodox Academy fairly recently and Jonathan Haidt was talking about how his concerns about the way that the internet and social media is affecting particularly younger women and Gen Z women, he thinks are going to have real problems with right. relationships because of because he thinks that effectively the, the, the changes that they go through, particularly going through puberty on social media, he thinks... They have completely unrealistic expectations about what a relationship is, and he thinks that's a real problem. It sounds like what you're talking about is kind of the male version of that. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a little problem that's not really well known uh, that that might be bigger than people realize, especially among millennial men. You know, mm-hmm. a, a, a young adult men who have gotten a little bit too much of their sense of of, of expectations and their sense of mating and mm-hmm. and 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 the patterns and and you know, that, that, that they should be pursuing. They've gotten a little bit too much from this kind of anti-woke, like mm-hmm. pro-man kind of, uh, the, the right-wing bodybuilders on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, I've been like strangely, you know, taken aback by how many smart guys I know mm-hmm. who, I mean, a few weeks ago I was with a buddy of mine who was like, um, he was showing me pictures of, of a date he went on with a girl and he was like, um, I was like, yeah, similar. I was like, oh, how's it going? You know, he's like, I don't think it's going to work out. And he literally showed me a picture where he drew the green lines, you know, the green line. Mm. 
he showed me a picture of him on a date with these green lines and he's like the green lines don't add up that's not how they're supposed to be you know the meme the meme is that the yeah. man is supposed to be straight the woman is supposed to be tilted showing yeah. that the man is more powerful and if you don't have those green lines correctly then it's not going to be a winning relationship this this guy literally showed me a picture of that and that and and he used this as a serious piece of evidence for why he's not going to pursue that relationship. I'm like, this is this is, that's kind of insane. I, I think people don't know that this is that this is an issue. So that's my little my little hobby horse yeah. on masculinity. Yeah. What else other than masculinity? I think there are a few other things that you're thinking about right now. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested in in potentially a production company, right. like um, maybe going back into trying to kind of make pieces for the mainstream like i think a lot of these a lot of these topics that particularly featured on rebel wisdom like the existential risk and the kind of um the the, the deeper kind of philosophical topics. i'd love to see if there's a possibility of getting those onto like bbc or netflix and but but knowing there's an ambivalence there because i know what a massive fucking ball ache it is to go through all of those different the amazing thing about youtube is that you record it you put it out straight away the flip side is that you don't necessarily get so many eyeballs you don't have the right. same level of credibility that you do as you go through the kind of the hoops to get it onto mainstream or legacy media legacy media there's so many different kind of gatekeepers there's so many different conversations you have to have there's so much in it's so intense like a do documentary making is incredibly intense and i'm like do i really want to do i really want to kind of have to go through those hoops mm -hmm. again i don't know it's an idea i mean i I do feel like there's an opportunity to start shifting. Um, yeah, I do think there's an opportunity for some of these topics to, to be kind of picked up yeah. by, by legacy now. But I'm also kind of ambivalent as to whether that if whether that's particularly my job to do or not. Right. Yeah. I don't know if, if, if you know Alex Moyer by any chance. She's no. doing a documentary on Alex Jones right now. Mm. She's done a couple of uh, controversial, provocative documentaries. And I'm pretty close friends with her. She lives here in Austin. And yeah, I get to see that from behind the scenes. It's like doing a, a, a mainstream documentary through the traditional kind of production and distribution systems. It's a mind. It's a crazy minefield, and it's like you have to jump through so many hoops, and you have to make sure so many people sign off on it. That if you want to do anything provocative, it's like, I mean, I really respect actually people who are willing to go through that those trials and tribulations, because it's a lot of waiting, it's a lot of you know negotiating, and it's a lot of like really having to fight for what you want to do, and you know get the right people on board and. You're always in kind of in fear that it's going to fall through or something like that. It's so, but then it was like you said, the benefit is you, you, if you succeed, you get your work dropped to a larger, larger audience. Right? And it, and it also becomes a thing that because it has the, the kind of the BBC or the Netflix name on it, it becomes something that can actually shift the conversation. You will get it picked up. You will, you will find that people write articles about it. It can become actually a cultural moment. It can make like a more concentrated splash, it seems, yeah. right? Because you can build a YouTube channel to be really big, right? And it's like maybe in, ter in sheer number of total eyeballs, maybe it probably get up there to be comparable or, or you know, whatever. But um, it's definitely more of a, a, a diffuse thing, right? To, to grow a big YouTube channel and do internet documentaries independently. Um, you know, you might be able to, to match it in, in some absolute terms, but it's definitely more, it's a slower, it's a much longer slog, a, a slower slog. Whereas if you can get that documentary placed with the right production company and the right distribution and the right people on board, you can make it drop in the culture like a, like a nuclear bomb, right? That's kind of what we're getting at, isn't it? So you yeah. still think about wanting to do, you, you, you kind of look back at that model with some interest. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other flip side of the, the, the massive ball ache is that if you're working with a good team and you're working with a good exec producer and commissioner, it does make it better. Like right. the, with the, the, the films that I was making before, particular unreported world, they were incredibly hard work, incredibly kind of debilitating and stressful and um, yeah, like crazy, crazy, crazy hours. But I would say that, and incredibly kind of difficult process and like lots of feedback of like you'd get changes to it that you're just like oh shit like that but they're gonna, genuinely adding take... value a lot of that is yeah some of it isn't most of it is adding value most right. of it was adding value um right. that's but i've also been on projects where the feedback that you get is just so off that you you still have to do it and then one bad commissioner or one bad sort of set of um someone who's having an off day and then comes up with some changes to the to the program that you just think are not make no sense then suddenly you're just you're like oh, you just i've spent like 
weeks of my life, months of my life doing this, and I feel like you've just ruined it. So you right. also get that dynamic as well. Right, right. So yeah, trade-offs, trade-offs in all things. But that's yeah. it, it is interesting though. Uh, you know, as you built this big independent media brand, mm. and I'm sure you enjoyed all the the benefits of doing that. The lack of gatekeepers, moving yeah. fast, getting your work out there fast. Um, it is interesting that as, as you look to um, move on from Rebel Wisdom that you're kind of appreciating the benefits and the attractions of that old model that you were also a part of for a while. Yeah, I mean, the the dialogue or the internal dialogue is, I've always been interested in changing the culture. Like, I feel like this, the period we're going yeah. through, the, the stakes are really high and I'm interested in changing the culture and I don't know how much, I feel like nearly everyone who's heard of Rebel Wisdom um Nearly everyone who's going to hear about Rebel Wisdom in the particular ecosystems of what we were covering probably has done by now. Like it's got the name recognition. So putting out more pieces just on Rebel Wisdom, is that going to achieve that? Right. And I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, there's all sorts of different reasons. And I, I don't have a particular plan for what happens afterwards. And I'm, I feel like um, there has to be a natural ending process before I feel confident of what I want to put my energy into next sure. um, yeah. yeah I don't want to jump too quickly to it and it needs to be this of course and, yeah. I'm, and I'm very wary of that I, I want to kind of build in some kind of like I said mimetic protection so that right. I'm not making a decision from a sense of scarcity or right. from a sense of urgency that's not um, I mean I do say, feel a sense of urgency but just not to kind of jump into something that might not be might not of be course, right of course just thinking aloud though listening to you because it's interesting that i kind of relate in a way my with with my own case with respect to academia mm. you know there's a lot of nonsense there's a lot of bureaucracy a lot of it is just wasting time and it's annoying and it's it is kind of suppressing but you do get some quality control benefits and you do get some accountability effects and, and a lot of the process of you know academia and peer review and all of that it's easy to hate on, and there's a lot that's kind of miscalibrated about it. But it also does, um, you know, polish things uh, to a degree that I kind of do miss in a way. You know, that there's something nice about having a bunch of other people who are, you know, maybe they're annoying you, maybe they're making you jump through hoops that are kind of a waste of time. But also, you know, it is kind of nice when your work has to go through this uh, process that multiple people are really, you know, adding value to in other ways as well. Um, and so I, I, you're making me kind of wonder if I maybe, you know, maybe the production companies of the future, the internet creators of the future, the internet media companies of the future, maybe maybe there's some way to find the, uh, a model that 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 solves this problem, maybe of of somehow combining these two things, right? Because that's in a way that's what we're talking about, right? Like the internet freedom is great, but it lets you go off the deep end, and it's it is hard to constrain yourself from going off the deep end when there's all these sinister and perverse incentives and 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 selection effects, right? Um, and, you know, I can relate to the benefits that I remember from, from the academic, you know, institutional processes. You're kind of thinking wistfully about the, uh, the benefits of, you know, working for the BBC or what have you. Um, maybe that's the future. Maybe someone has to figure out the right structure where it's like you get all the speed and freedom mm -hmm. and independence for creators to do stuff on the Internet. But you also somehow find a way to create structures of account of strong accountability and strong rigor and mm. intensive editing and maybe there's a way to do that that hasn't been done yet um that's just what you're making me think about yeah yeah i mean there's been a few questions or conversations that have been had during rebel wisdom could the could you come up with like a code of ethics or a code of mm. conduct for independent curators or independent um creators that that you could kind of hold each other accountable mm. don't know um right. And is there is there a kind of is there a Web three solution? Is there a way of kind of creating a sense of ownership that people have that would be then able to be sort of like decentralized editorial? What would a sense making DAO look like? All of these different questions, which are kind of a little bit above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think all of that's being being figured out slowly but surely, and it's very early days. So, but I think your intuition uh, could be correct that that there will I think be interesting. Um, you know, opportunities in that regard. I think, I do think that what is currently called Web3, um, which has a lot of noise and a lot of stuff that's not going to last, I, I do tend to think that there will be certain um, organizational and uh, 
coordinating functions mm. that are fundamentally novel that allow us to actually create sustainable organizations of, of a new type. And I don't think we know exactly what that what they are. I'm very modest, just like you are about the future. I, I don't pretend to have some really clear uh, conviction around exactly how that's going to pan out. But I do see I do feel increasingly confident that um, non-trivial and novel organizational possibilities will come out of it one way or another. Mm. And I think it's just our job to, to figure out what that is. Um, so that's something we, maybe we can talk about over time in the future. Mm. I know you have a busy trip here in Austin and I promised I would get you out of here on time. So I just want to thank you so much for coming through. It was nice to meet you in person and to talk with you in person. This is the second time you're on the podcast. So I'm glad to have you back on and I'm just grateful for your time and thanks for sharing where you're at with the, your journey. And it's interesting. And I think a lot of people will learn from, you know, um, you know, what you've built with Rebel Wisdom and your ability to look back at it now and think about it uh, in this detached way. I think I find it admirable and I think a lot of people in the audience will learn a lot from it. So thank you. Thank you, Justin. <laughs> all right, David, that's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end. So you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.